really nice to see you all and be with you tonight. I want to take you back to June of the year 587 uh, BC. Uh, so it's uh, before I was born. And I want you to imagine uh, what's going on. Is there a bit more light? Is that right? Thanks, Elliot. I feel a bit like I'm... Ah, that's better. I can see my screen now. Um, we're in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem has held out against the Babylonian army for about two and a half years. And the city of Jerusalem is completely surrounded, and all the food is now gone. And King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the Babylonian king, uh, had uh, entirely surrounded the city, and he's come to punish the king of Jerusalem, whose name was Zedekiah. Uh, Zedekiah had betrayed Nebuchadnezzar, and now Nebuchadnezzar is there to collect. And one night in June 587 BC, the Babylonians finally break through the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And from that second on, the second they get through the walls, it is all over. No single Israelite stands to fight. They all run. And they run, we read in Jeremiah 52, they run through the gate near the king's garden and out into the night. And they run for their lives. But they never have a chance. The Babylonians catch up with them down the mountain in the plains of Jericho. And this is what happens next. Zedekiah, the king, is captured along with his sons. The first thing that the Babylonians do is murder Zedekiah's sons in front of him. Then they gouge out his eyes so that the last thing he's ever seen is his sons being murdered. Then they bind him and they take him away. Then they go back up to Jerusalem. They go to the temple and they loot the temple of all of its treasures. Then they set the temple on fire. Then they set the king's palace on fire. Then they uh, set all the houses in Jerusalem on fire. And if that's not enough, they rip down all of the city walls. They gather up all the top officials of Jerusalem and they kill them. They do what they want with the people. Some they leave dead, some wish they were dead. Many are led away into slavery. A few are left behind in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, 587 BC, the glorious city of kings David and Solomon now lies in ruins. And the temple, which is like the epicenter of glory and hope and the power of God is literally a burnt out shell. And God's promises to his people and their dreams for living with him are literally shattered into oblivion. And this is Lamentations 1. Now we hear the anguish of the people who are left. And we may not want to listen because not all of us like to listen to suffering. We may not agree with some of their conclusions. We may be surprised by their tone of voice with God. It's the kind of tone of voice that gets you told off by your parents or a teacher. It's cheeky, it's impertinent, it's questioning. But we will listen 
to their voice tonight. As we heard in our Bible reading, we have one character in this first chapter, and we see this one character from two angles in this first poem. The character is the city of Jerusalem as a whole. And we see her as a weeping widow who is inconsolable in her grief. We watch her. And now she is destitute, she is abandoned, she is craving our pity and our attention. Maybe you've seen someone similar on the streets in this country or in another country. And you know that look of utter dejection. Someone who has given up, who is inconsolable. She is described to us in Lamentations 1, but she also speaks to us in Lamentations 1. And she talks about her destitution. Now in Israel's history, the covenant relationship between God and Israel had often been portrayed as an exclusive and loving marriage. And the image is used positively a lot of times, and the people of Israel are told, look, God loves us like the best, loving, faithful husband there could possibly be. But the image is also used negatively uh, for the people of Israel, that in a sense they have not been so great. (coughs) They've been faithless and adulterous, and they have run after other lovers. And so it's interesting that uh, Lamentations 1 uses an image of a widow who is left destitute on the streets for the city of Jerusalem. It's a really, really powerful way of saying for Jerusalem, things are so bad, it's as if God has died and is no more. In chapter 1, we hear the immediate causes of Jerusalem's anguish. These are the wounds that she notices as she first crawls out of the rubble. First, she feels destitute because the city is deserted. That's how it begins. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. Everyone's gone. Jerusalem had been, should be, this bustling center of celebration, thronging with pilgrims, filled with dancing and joy. But there's no one. Lots have been killed, and almost all of the people who haven't been killed have been taken away into slavery. There's just a few people left. I guess it must be like waking up in many uh, Syrian or Turkish villages and towns at the moment, that as you wake up, you expect to hear the traffic and smell the smells and hear people waking up and hear the cars and hear the children going to school. And there's nothing, just silence. There is no one. And so Jerusalem is grieving this catastrophic loss of community. For us, maybe it would be like turning up at Wembley Uh, for a game, only to find that the stadium is completely deserted and there are just rats picking over the rubbish. It's the wrong kind of peace. It's not a good, quiet uh, peace of retreat, but it's a peace of the just being nobody there. 
And of course, there have been hundreds and thousands of moments in history where the same thing has happened, where there's been catastrophic taking over of cities uh, by invading armies. And this tale has been told again and again and again. But here we see two and a half thousand years ago uh, its impact. The second impact it has is that uh, she feels that she has been violated. The poet's language is bold, it's unrelenting. Uh, rape was one of the ugliest weapons of war in uh, ancient times, and of course, it has remained so ever since. But there's a wider, deeper sense that the invading army were an uninvited, catastrophic violation of the whole city uh, with all of those uh, feelings of shame and disgust and anguish uh, for the people. And this crushing sense of violation is only deepened by the mocking of those who shamed her. They have no shame. In fact, they are multiplying her pain with their mockery and their taunts and their derision. And of course, that is an image that we absolutely recognize from our own times. Jerusalem complains that, in a sense, her nakedness is now on show to everybody, and everybody is laughing at her. And of course, we see that played out now for your generation in a way that my generation could never have conceived of. How one naked picture gets passed from person to person to person, and that person's shame increases, and the derision and the laughter and the taunting and the mocking grow to a crescendo. That is what Jerusalem feels. Third, and most painfully, she begins to ponder, why, why has this happened? Of course, you only have to be alive for a few years in any part of the world to ponder that very question. Whether it's pondering it about your own direct experience or about something else that has happened. But it's totally natural for Jerusalem to get to that question, why has this happened? She has always seen the world and she's seen herself primarily through the eyes of faith and the eyes of faith in Israel's covenant God. So we're not surprised that some of her immediate thoughts turn to, well, what was, what was God's part in this catastrophic thing that has just happened? We read in verse 5, the Lord has brought her grief. Why? Because of her many sins. Or in verse 8, Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. Now, it might well be our first instinct if we sat down for a coffee uh, with uh, Jerusalem, quickly to refute this line of self-recrimination. It's not your fault, we might find ourselves saying. Now, we're going to come back to this issue again and again over the next few weeks. We're not going to solve it tonight. But we do know that God has repeatedly confronted Jerusalem particularly through his prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah had warned Jerusalem against her intolerable social injustice. 
It was a terrible place to live. Rich, uh, taking the poor uh, for granted, taking them to the cleaners. Uh, it was a place full of religious hypocrisy and idolatry. And Jerusalem as a city uh, was over-reliant on foreign kings, uh, foreign rulers. They couldn't quite bring themselves to trust God. And so they kept on reaching out for these alliances uh, with other rulers. And Jeremiah had warned them literally for decades, warning that this very destruction would come at the hands of a godless tyrant like Nebuchadnezzar. So, is real. Even if the Babylonians, the invading army, are also through their destruction and through their terrible taking of life and mistreatment of people, even though they are just as guilty. And even in chapter 1, we begin to hear her say to God, God, you've got to do what is fair and just. And there's no way that what has happened to us is fair and just. So, we've heard what's happened. A terrifying, citywide destruction of people and purpose. A city left destitute. We've heard what she feels in the aftermath, sickened by the silence, violated and mocked and guilty and angry and sensing that the punishment, if that is what it is, does not fit the crime. And the image that we hear most often in Lamentations 1, I don't know if you noticed it, is being without comfort. There is no one to comfort her, we keep hearing. No one to comfort her. Now, of course, we recognize this from our own experience. To suffer is an isolating experience. Suffering cuts us off from other people. Even with something as simple as a toothache, let alone something that is, is deeper and that causes more anguish, more shame, more concern or consternation in us. Suffering cuts us off from other people, but also from God. Joy is often the reverse, isn't it? Joy uh, very naturally bonds us with other people. It's easy to share joy with others. I think lots of us actually find that it's quite easy to share joy with God. Uh, joy, joy is quite a comfortable thing to be feeling in the presence of God. Suffering is not. It isolates. Let me finish with the two things that I believe we can do about that today. First, we need to learn to be wonderful comforters. That's it. We just need to learn to be wonderful comforters. And to learn to be wonderful comforters, we need to rebuke the selfishness and the fear that is inside us. Because almost every single person here, even the most saintly, godly, lovely person will have those experiences where they, they, it says they perceive, they see, they recognize the suffering and the need of another person. And you withdraw 
you hold back or you keep them at arm's length. We all know this experience. And so to learn to be wonderful comforters means first that we rebuke that selfishness and that fear. Godly, compassionate people comfort others. That's what we do. We recognize hurt and anguish in other people. And when we see it, we bring comfort and peace and solidarity and understanding. We bring a prayerful and a faithful presence to the people who, in their isolation, because they're suffering, may well feel that God has deserted them. And I've felt that at times. And I've sat with a whole heap of people who have decided that that is true, that God has deserted them. Godly, compassionate people aren't thrown by that, don't panic with that, don't try and cure that, but they do know how to begin to be a faithful and comforting presence. Secondly, we can learn from Jerusalem's lonely grief. Right now, in chapter 1, there's five chapters of Lamentations, right now, God seems absolutely silent to her pleas. There is no sign of God responding, God reaching out to her, God listening to any of the things that she's saying. Well, she is, not, she is undaunted by that silence. Uh, what she does is she keeps on asking, and she keeps on weeping, and she keeps on waiting. And that's because she feels that she has nowhere else to go. She says in verse 20, See, Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within, and in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. I think few of us dare to pray uh, with such honesty, uh, with such transparency. We might just say it in the quietnesses of our own heart. But we wouldn't dare, many of us, say it to another person. Because our fear would be that they would look on us as failures, as lacking in faith, as immature, or somehow not respectful of God. And yet God has given us these words. At, this, at the first poem's end, Jerusalem won't take no for an answer. As she finishes the first of her four A to Zs of grief, she is holding out for God's compassion. And she's holding out for God's justice to be more fully realized. It's a very potent mix of things that she's beginning to say. She's acknowledging that there were things that she had done wrong that, can, that got her to the mess that she's in. She knows that. She knows too that the God of love 
has made promises to her. And so she holds on to those and reminds God of what they are. And she knows too that great injustice has been done. That the Babylonian army have raped and pillaged and destroyed at a scale that was never the intention of God. And she wants to say to God, bring justice. Stop the killing. Stop the tragedy. Stop the destruction. I am not going to patronize anybody here today or belittle your pain or tell you that everything's going to be okay at the end of the service. But I can encourage you in the light of Lamentations 1 not to let go of God today. Not to walk away, not to conclude that he's sold you out. God has not sold you out. Seek him and remind him of his promises. Let your prayers refine your pain. Pain is really good at doing that. And sometimes the experience of pain will refine our prayers in a way that we do not welcome before, but we do give thanks for afterwards. Don't be daunted. God has given you these words of grief and lament and destitution. Use them. Use them for yourself. Own them. Own them for yourself. Own them for our community. It's not just about us. It's about the communities in which we find ourselves. It's about the places in our world today for whom Lamentations 1 is a lived reality. It's not as though in 25 centuries the world has now become a loving, beautiful place where these things don't happen. They happen at greater scale than ever before. Use these words, own these words, and wait to see how God answers them. And we're going to spend a few minutes very quietly in prayer now. Um, if it helps you to close your eyes when, you're, when you pray, please do, but you don't have to. I invite you to sit quietly. And we invite God the Holy Spirit to lead us now to be here. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and lead our thinking, our prayers. We've heard the wounds that hurt most as Jerusalem staggered from the ruins. She's lonely, violated, guilty, confused. We're not competing with her today. But as we sit quietly, ask yourself, what are the wounds that you carry today? 
Particularly, what are the wounds that you could never say out loud to God or to others? Things that you don't feel belong to God. They're, they're too difficult. They're too traumatic. They're too shameful. Just in the quietness of this time, decide on a word or a couple of words that for you sum up those wounds. God, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the words of grief in Lamentations. We thank you for those words that we have spoken in our own hearts. We want to bring them to you. We speak them to you. We don't want uh, to pretend anymore. We are sorry for hiding these wounds away. And we are sorry, God, for our failure to listen to other people, particularly for our failure to listen to the voices of those who are suffering most acutely. Forgive us. And Lord, we bring our words and we bring the words of Lamentations 1 to you. And we say to you, please do something, God. We invite you. We implore you. We remind you, God, of your promises to us. Prepare our hearts for what you want to do. Lord, please help us to listen to the voices of those who are suffering in our own circle of friends and family, in our community, in our country, across our world. Give us the grace, Lord, to listen to them. Please, Lord, teach us to be wonderful comforters People who can love and give compassion. Who can give our full attention to those who are isolated in their pain. Lord, please bind up our wounds. Those things that we have named, maybe we've never named before. Lord, please lead us to godly repentance for those things that we've done that have hurt others or that have landed us deep in uh, the quagmire. Forgive us, Lord. Make us new. Please encourage us. Please build us up. 
Lord, we pray that you would stand in the way of the tyrant. You stand in the way of the bullies and the people who oppress those who take advantage of the vulnerable and the weak and the poor and children. Please, God, stand in their way today. And please, Lord, help us to wait, to not give up, to keep on asking and to wait for your grace and for the new beginnings that you bring. We ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.